Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, parts of Louisiana remain cut off this morning without communication, without help, and more than a million people are still without power and likely will be for weeks. Hurricane Ida did everything it was advertised to do as a Category 4 hurricane, causing torrential rain, mass flooding, winds that ripped the roofs off homes and businesses. I'm sure you've seen some of that footage by now. And to make matters even more difficult, there is now a heat advisory in place. Well, to talk about the damage that's been done, we managed to get a hold of Benjamin Scott, National Weather Service meteorologist in New Orleans. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. How are things down there? We tried to talk to you yesterday. We weren't able to get through. What were conditions like for you? Um, well, we're just a little bit to the north and east of, uh, of the city of New Orleans, uh, across Lake Pontchartrain, if you're kind of familiar with the geography down here. So we took a bad hit, um, not as bad as areas in New Orleans and just to the west there. Um, but uh, it was a rough beyond a rough day and um, there's still a ton of people suffering and they'll probably be suffering for quite a while from what Ida has done down here. Um, it's, you know, and the, the thing is, is you all probably have seen more pictures of what's going on than us because we have no power. We have um, no internet. I mean, I can't, I can't really see much um, here at the office. We have just the basic con- uh, communications right now, which is landline phones and just a really, really weak Wi-Fi signal that occasionally lets us do a few things. So it's, it's, it's not been fun. No, I can imagine. All of a sudden, you realize the value, I guess, of landline phones. Yeah, you know, uh, everyone gets so dependent on uh, on uh, cell phones and mobile phones that uh, you forget how good that uh, that can be when you take a pretty good hit with a storm like this. And so what are the weather conditions like now? What has happened to Ida? Well, Ida now is, is moving off uh, into, into Tennessee, um, and we're heading off towards the East Coast in the next day or so. Um, down here, we're just we've just turned hot, uh, but you know, parts of Tennessee Valley will get some heavy rain uh, during the day today. Um, for us, you know, we're looking at temperatures being somewhere you know 32, 33 Celsius. It's it's going to be really warm, and the humidity is really high. Um, so people without air conditioning, you know, are going to be in a pretty bad place today. Yeah. So what kind of concerns does that bring? Like, does that help at all with kind of getting some of the water out of there, or is this going to be more of a hindrance? Well, I mean, some of the water in places, just because Louisiana is just such a low-lying area in many parts, it's just it's just stuck. Um, the good thing that's happened uh, is, is as the storm moved off, uh, the winds changed direction, and so now we're getting winds from the north. And the benefit for that for our area is is, is some of the marshy areas where the water backed up, it helps push the water back out into Lake Pontchartrain or back into the Gulf of Mexico. So, um, and it left, allows the rivers that are running really high and flooding right now um, and causing issues there to uh, start to be able to drain uh, again back into into the tidal lakes and into the Gulf of Mexico. Like all those improvements, and Ben, that they made after Hurricane Katrina, did those hold? Like where were the areas that were hit? Yeah, so everything, um, you know, the horrific pictures everybody saw from, from Katrina, um, all the new improvements to the levee system there completely held. No issues on that end at all for the city of New Orleans. Uh, the areas that saw flooding were from the coastal storm surge, 
Um, and then also in, in some of the areas, even inland, again, if you have to kind of maybe look at the geography of the area, but we have these tidal lakes that are, that are just north of uh, New Orleans, and a lot of water gets piled up in there from the Gulf of Mexico when these storms come in, and it just builds over um, some of these smaller levees that just couldn't handle such a storm like this, and you get uh, incredible widespread flooding on top of the 15, 17 inches of rain we got. Wow. Okay. So, like you say, there's still a lot going on there. Any idea, Benjamin, when thing, things might improve? No. Um, you know, the the thing is, um, I don't think we've seen all the worst of the damage yet. I don't even think we have a really good assessment of how bad it really is. We saw a lot of this uh, last year down here in Louisiana with Hurricane Laura that hit the southwestern portion of the state. And it was almost three to five, maybe even seven days before we had a full assessment of how bad it was. I have a, a feeling just from everything that I'm hearing and seeing from the emergency management community that that's the way this is going to be. Um, there's going to, I still think, going to be some um, very horrible stories um, come out uh, in the next day or two as we start to get into areas that we haven't heard from yet. That's the scary part, right? Because it does feel like there isn't a whole lot of information for those of us who are, who are watching from outside the area. No, and it's the same thing here. And, and, you know, our main people that we talk to day in, day out is the emergency management community, and they're the frontline people that are out there right now trying to organize the efforts to find people, rescue people, um, you know, understand the damage and, and figure out what we can do to start patching things up. And, um, and they're overwhelmed. And, um, you know, there's a lot of help coming in, but, um, you know, it, it's going to be a while. Um, this isn't going to get fixed uh, next week or next month. Um, I mean, for some people, this may be a year process before they feel whole again. Wow. Now, Ben, you're a meteorologist then. Like, what were the chances of the big a big storm like this hitting on the exact same day as Hurricane Katrina did so many years earlier? It has to be one of the worst coincidences um, in meteorology. Um, you know, people down here still have kind of a PTSD feeling uh, because of uh, Katrina and with the fact that it was going to hit on the same day. Um, even some of our staff here who went through Katrina, um, you could see that it was, uh, there was an emotional toll being uh, taken on them um, with the idea that this was happening on the same day and, and then not knowing, you know, how well everything was going to hold up. Um, it, 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 was, it was brutal. Um, it was just brutal. Well, listen, Ben, thank you for joining us. I know you made a real effort to talk to us, and we really appreciate that. We're thinking of you, and best of luck. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That's Benjamin Scott. He is a National Weather Service meteorologist in New Orleans. I am guilty of requesting Bananarama this morning because I just felt like it was a Bananarama type of morning, although I'm sure Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun would disagree with me on that. Right, Vaughn? No, I go with that. Sounds great. Well, I feel Sounds like, like somebody else, though. You know, you were talking about <laughs> yes. music plagiarism, and uh, it's a great subject. Um, I mean, the thing about it, and since you said you were going to ask me about it, I, I'm I was. say what I think. As a former rock critic, look, most popular. We're talking about popular music, and most popular musicians, most successful ones, the first thing they'll tell you is they started off listening to somebody else. That's why they became pop musicians. They exactly. were inspired. And they start off sounding like whoever the hell inspired them. And if they're really successful, they get to be original and do their own stuff. But how much overlap? Well, you know, Simi, that's often an issue that has to be sorted out in court. If you're really successful, 
and there are echoes of your predecessors in your work, um, not surprisingly, whoever holds the publishing rights or the other creative rights um, to the earlier stuff, uh, they might send their lawyers after you. And uh, it's happened to a lot of really big musicians. Um, George Harrison. Yeah, John Lennon of the Beatles was successfully sued for ripping off Chuck Berry. Uh, So were the Beach Boys. Now, I recall someone saying at the time, I think it was a musician, that everybody ripped off Chuck Berry. In fact, you could argue that rock and roll itself ripped off Chuck Berry. There is, however, Simi, I give you the greatest of the legal battles over plagiarism. Yes. And it was the accusation of self-plagiarism, where... Neil Young was sued by his own record company for not sounding enough like Neil Young. What? Yeah, he put out albums. Geffen Records signed Neil Young uh, away from his previous record company and looked forward to him churning out a whole bunch of Neil Young-type hits, and he put out a whole bunch of albums the record company didn't like, and they sued him for not sounding enough like Neil Young. In other words, they bought him looking for him to sound like Neil Young, and he didn't. And that one ended up in court, very messy battle. At the end of the day, the record company apologized to Neil Young and didn't win, but he may be the only pop uh, artist in history who was accused of not stealing from himself. That seems like crazy that they would even file that. That was David Geffen, I guess, and, but just crazy. Why would you even file that lawsuit? Because well, you don't tell somebody how to sound. Yeah, but you know, we're beginning to see, we continue to see just how valuable pop music is, and particularly the publishing rights and the royalties that flow from them for a long time. So even when record sales collapse and people forget about CDs and all that, there's still enormous money to be made if you hold the rights, especially the publishing rights to the song or the songwriting royalties and all of that. Um you know, look it up. Bob Dylan just sold his back music catalog for yes. $600 million going forward. Um, that includes a number of early Bob Dylan songs where people have said, hey, Dylan put the copyright on it, but he really borrowed the song from his predecessors who were folk musicians or blues musicians. So that's why this stuff ends up in court, because if you win, there's an awful lot of money in the win. It is so fascinating. I know that we should almost do another segment with you about that, but we're here yeah. to talk some politics, yeah, too. Because sure. um, there is another what, modeling press conference coming up today. We heard from Adrian Dix yesterday. It's been a busy couple of days. Yeah, it's been a very, very busy month on the pandemic front, and I think that's, uh, you know, on the healthcare front, and that's because, uh, you know, the government thought this story was going to fade, and it didn't. And not only did it not fade, it went in the wrong direction. It went in a a direction of a a fourth wave and things getting worse. So yesterday, Dix made a major announcement in the healthcare sector. Normally, it would have been a huge headline. Uh, He is basically taking 4,000 jobs that were sent out to private contractors for cleaning and uh, and, uh, food services. So the Liberals sent those jobs out to private contractors to save money. And Dix is taking all 4,000 of them back into government. They're going to become public sector workers again, a big win for the hospital employees union. As I say, that normally would be a huge story. And in the long run, it's an important one. But when Dix went to questions yesterday, 
um, not surprisingly, all the questions from the news media were about uh, open issues around the pandemic, the outbreaks in long-term care, the vaccine passport controversy, enforcement and all that. Which is still such a huge issue. And we still haven't gotten all the details on the vaccine passport either. No, and I mean, uh, one of the questions, and I mean, I'm getting them in emails, I'm sure you are as well, which is, you know, how do I register for this? How do I get yeah. one of these things? What do they look like? What if I don't have an iPhone? All that. Details to come, and there's not a hell of a lot of time before they do. You've got you to gotta be going on these things by September the 13th. So it's like a lot of things the New Democrats have done this summer on the pandemic. It's not a rush job, but now they're scrambling because um, it's gotten worse you know, for a long time, they were saying we don't need vaccine passports. So um, that's part of it. We're waiting for the details along with everybody else. Uh, the other question I think that hanging out there in the air is um, there's a big outbreak here in Victoria, a, a place called Sunset Lodge. A bunch of people have COVID-19, residents and a few staff. And how did it get in there when, exactly. you know, we're told 100% of the residents are vaccinated. And Dick Scott asked about this yesterday, and I didn't find the answers all that reassuring. I don't think he knows the answer to that yet, which is surprising, too. Um, there's a suggestion, he, he referred to it, that it may be related to the fact that the people were vaccinated a long time ago, and perhaps it's a sign that the efficacy of the vaccines are fading. That's a disturbing thought. Yeah. He suggested the government's looking at the possibility of booster shots. He didn't really address whether or not it got in there through the staff, although, again, there's an insistence that most of the staff in there are overwhelmingly vaccinated. So uh, I hope this is an isolated thing that uh, to which we'll get an explanation. But, you know, I think we're all hearing from people who have uh, aged parents and relatives in long-term care. Uh, gee, how safe are they? Um, the compulsory vaccination for long-term care isn't fully implemented on October the 12th. So it's a race, again, between the virus and the vaccine. It certainly seems that way, too. So today we're going to get more information on the modeling of like where we're going with these current case numbers. And it seems to me, Vaughn, that last time we did one of these press conferences and got this modeling information, we didn't pay attention to it because we were told this was coming. Uh, yeah, look, um, I mean, the, the main thing that I find is communicated by the modeling is um, that you get a, a glimpse of just how complicated it is. So in some respects, British Columbia has done very, very well. We have a very high vaccination rate. On the other hand, our case count per capita is worse than in some other provinces. Um, we're back to where we were in April in terms of cases, but, you know, you also have to say, hang on a minute, hospitalizations and ICU aren't as high. In general, the people that are getting it, and especially the people that are ending up in hospital, are people who aren't vaccinated. That's why in answer to almost every question yesterday, Dick said, get vaccinated. That's, that's still got to be the push. If you're not vaccinated, um, you're 10 times as likely to end up in hospital as a vaccinated person. Sorry, 10 times as likely to get COVID-19 as a vaccinated person and 20 times as likely to get in hospital. You think that would do it? Um, no, nope. but, you know, I, <laughs> I see a colleague of ours in Kamloops, Brent Manier, reporting this morning that he's oh, been yeah. calling around 
Oh, should I even say this? What's going on know. up there? It just, no, it's I won't so even disappointing because it, it just in, encourages the nut factor. Yeah, it does. And uh, that whole story, I thought it was just in the States, but it turns out it's here too. And you just, it just makes you realize, Vaughn, I don't know how we get through to some people. I just no, don't know how you do it. it's a struggle. And, you know, I think if you, if you go back to the spring and you go back to the second and third wave, the, the reason they were optimistic about getting us to the level we'll be at by Labor Day, which is 85% of the population having a first dose, first dose of the vaccine. The reason that that, that they were confident about that was because we were on track to get there, and they thought, based on the science they had at the time, that that would produce community immunity. You'd still have a a, a minority of people not vaccinated, but it was no big deal. Nice theory, though. But the things that have changed are the Delta variant, which is much more transmissible, and some evidence that um, the, you may need booster shots. Certainly Israel and the United States are both headed in that direction. That, uh, you know, I mean, we know this with other vaccines that uh, you sometimes yep. have to get a booster shot. So we may be headed in that direction as well. So it's a longer struggle than we expected, but, you know... <laughs> If uh, anyone had told me on March the 16th, uh, 2020, when I moved home from my office at the legislature, that I would still be here, not just hiding from Asian giant hornets, but from the pandemic, (laughs) I don't know what I would have done. And I think there's an awful lot of people out there that feel the same way. Like, God, I didn't know this thing was going to go on for two years. That's what I thought, too. And here we are. Avon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simeon. Well, today is National Overdose Awareness Day, and BC, unfortunately, is in its sixth year of an ongoing public emergency. And the whole saddest part about all that is, after six years, 2021 is sounds like it's going to be the worst year yet for overdoses in this province. Now, this morning, at about 10 o'clock this morning, we expect to get the updated numbers for June and July for opioid overdoses in this province. And you know what? The news is not going to be good. Not only is it going to be two months, so a high number, uh, the province is on track. It has been month after month seeing an increasing number of overdoses. Now, Mom Stop the Harm is an organization that will be joining uh, along with health officials for that press conference today regarding the update to preview that and to talk about National Overdose Awareness Day. We are joined by Deborah Bailey from Mom Stop the Harm. Deborah, thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. We know that so far the numbers through the end of May were 851 deaths so far this year. Are you expecting some more bad news today? Unfortunately, uh, yes, we are. We don't anticipate. We haven't seen any reason why the numbers, uh, sadly, would go down. So yes, we're bracing ourselves for the numbers. It's still so shocking, Deborah. Like, are you surprised when you see how high they continue to be? Yes, after this many years, I, I am shocked by it, and I can hardly believe that I lived in a, a, a province and a country which I love that, that continues to um, just accept these numbers without taking some bolder action to stop the death. What kind of bolder action are we talking about? Well, obviously, we, you know, some of the things that have been put in place have been uh, life-saving, for example, the safe injection sites and the use of 
uh, opioid agonist treatments like Suboxone. But we have to just come to terms with the fact that the, the supply of drugs that people are purchasing is toxic, and we need to do something about that toxic supply ourselves. We're not going to be able to, you know, police our way out of it. Uh, we need to provide people who use drugs currently with a safer supply. Is that something be. that your mind has been changed on over the years? Like, have you come to that decision? Oh, yeah. You know, we, we um, nobody likes to think of uh, their, their child as using drugs. And, uh, you know, if my daughter had come to me, er, er, who passed away early on and said, uh, Mom, you know, I'm going to go on a safe supply of heroin, I would not have been thrilled because, of course, we don't want our children and our loved ones to become to be addicted. But I would have at least been relieved that she wouldn't die. And therefore, there's hope for her that she could get into a, you know, a program or a treatment program that could have helped her with her addiction. So over the years, it's changed to the point where I think we have to um, recognize that people who are dead can't get treatment. And so we need to, to stop the death as a first step. Deborah, that must have been so difficult for you to even come to that realization because I, I'm sure that having a loved one that you've lost to this, you feel like that's your enemy, right? Those drugs are your enemy. Yeah, I mean, you just want them to stop doing stop doing those things. And, uh, you know, it's hard to understand why they continue. But as the years have gone on, I've really um, come to have a much better understanding of addiction and the complexities of it. And in order to fight this thing, I think we have to drop some of the ideas that we've had and held for so many years and look at what is actually going to work and save so many young Canadians uh, from, from an early death. Now, I know we're moving down the, you know, safe supply road. Do you feel like, are we not getting there fast enough? What needs to happen? We're not getting there fast enough. We keep trying to um, say things like, well, we'll provide treatment beds or we'll do this or we'll do that. But really what, what is happening out there is just that people go to the street to purchase drugs and that drug supply is toxic and it's not getting any better. So, you know, we have to look at multiple paths to provide some kind of a safe supply, whether that's through a medical program, um, if they're diagnosed with um, substance use disorder, or whether that's through something like a compassion club, where people sign up for a regulated supply. You know, there are multiple paths that we can choose. I think there are multiple benefits, too, is that if we remove um, the drug sales from the people who are, are doing it now, it might stop some of the other gun violence that's happening and um, stop some of the cartels from getting so incredibly rich off of our suffering. So then we're not doing that fast enough, as you said there. And getting somebody safe supply, does that mean, do you think that at some point they become more inclined to get help for that addiction? Uh, I, I think that possibility exists. I mean, we've done a couple of studies about that in Vancouver, and what we've found is that people stabilize. They, they're not out on the streets looking for drugs or ways to get money to get drugs. Some of them um, went back for employment and they kept their housing situation. Um, my daughter and many others w wanted to recover. She didn't want to be addicted. And she tried many times and cried many tears over the fact that she just couldn't do this. She was stunned at the fact that she just couldn't stop. And I think that's what happens to some people. So, 
you know, we we would give people another chance at um, getting to a better place. We also know that addiction is a chronic relapsing condition. And right now, if you relapse, it can be deadly. So one relapse can be deadly. And so we need to just find a way that people can uh, deal with addiction in, and, and it doesn't kill them. I don't think addiction needs to kill people. Now, on this National Overdose Awareness Day then, Deborah, what message do you want people to take? What do you want them to keep in mind? Um, well, we want them to keep in mind that um, to be kind to everyone and that even those people who use drugs are, are, deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And just as we were um, dealing with COVID by using the advice of our experts and, and medical personnel, we need to deal with this epidemic in the same way by looking at what is, what is the best advice that our experts can give us. And then we need to follow that advice no matter where it takes us and to maybe stretch our minds a little bit about what we might have to do in order to keep people alive. That's a good way to put it. Deborah, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, best of luck. That's Deborah Bailey from Mom Stop the Harm, lost her daughter to addiction and overdose. And uh, this morning, she will be part of the group that will be marking National Overdose Awareness Day, along with the coroner service, which is releasing its numbers today for overdose deaths in June and July. They had to put it off. Uh, because of the heat dome investigation, the deaths into the heat dome that they had to look at. So expect the number to be high. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And not good. We've got mask mandates back for indoor public spaces, and we've got a vaccine passport mandate that is coming up just in order to be able to attend certain events. You want to go to indoor dining? You're going to need to show proof of vaccination. If you want to go to a conference or a wedding, and that was specified, yes, you're going to need to show proof of vaccination. But here's the thing. How do you organize that at a wedding? Who does it, right? Do you have to now appoint somebody? Well, listen, not a lot of clarity on this, but it is causing a lot of wedding planners to scramble. And we have one that joins us now. It's Jordan Maxey, co-owner of Smitten Events. Good morning, Jordan. Good morning. How are you? I am good, thank you. So tell me, when you heard about these regulations, did it kind of throw you for a loop? It, it did. I think what we've been dealing with for the past 18 months um, is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of ever-changing plans. So we've always tried to stay on top of things, but this is a bit of a new one. Yeah, it is. So how is this affecting some of the weddings that you've probably got planning right now? What we're doing is on our end, we're just trying to take it case by case. So when we work with our wedding couples or our corporate clients or any celebration events, we really look at each event as a separate situation. And so the mandate and the way that it's going to affect every wedding and every event is a little bit different. So we are fortunate to have some outdoor events still, which will not be under the ruling of the mask mandate. Um, And then for indoor events, we're just trying to be as aware as possible of, of the situation and how we can make it work with them, you know, being able to be in their seats for longer so that their masks are off. 
Okay, but what about the idea of the vaccine passport then? Like, does that mean that wedding, like, do you have to find somebody who's going to stand at the door and check people's, you know, vaccine passport? Um, the, the answer is that we don't know right now. It's not been properly rolled out in terms of who is responsible for this. So my team and I are working on formulating a, pa- a plan of basically trying to figure out whose role this is. And if it is ours, then we will have um, a team in, in action be able to do this. But it's not something that, you know, me as the principal event planner at an event can take on. It would have to be an additional service. Right. So, Jordan, how crazy busy has this summer been? Like once some of the regulations got lifted on July 1st, and did everybody rush to plan a wedding? I wouldn't say people rushed to plan a wedding, but what happened was a lot of our clients got really excited about what this meant for their wedding. So some people were maybe planning really cautiously, um, but as soon as July 1st happened and we rolled into stage three, I think most of our couples, especially those who had postponed from 2020, uh, got really excited about what this could look like, a mask-free wedding, a wedding with dancing. Um, So there's been a lot of disappointment as the restrictions have kind of eased and then gone back into more of a a restricted area. So there have been a lot of ups and downs. So how do you cope with that then? Like, is is still the outdoor wedding the best way to go? And aren't you kind of running out of time to have those? (laughs) Yes. Um, Thankfully, here in Vancouver, September is kind of summer 2.0. So uh, any of our couples, um, any of our corporate events that are planned for September have weather on their side for the most part. But um, we just, we don't know what the fall will look like. We don't know if the restrictions will continue, if there will be further restrictions, or if things will ease again. So it's just, it's hard to know really how to plan. Wow. Like what, what kind of a year have you had, Jordan? It must've been Um, just so up and down. (laughs) It's, it has been a real challenge. Uh, I'm not going to lie. The entire event industry has been really, really compromised by this. It has been, you know, it's taken a lot of additional time to work within the, the public health orders to anticipate what to do to best advise our couples and our clients on how to move forward with their events. Um, and a lot of the time, there's a lot of lack of clarity. So it's just it's trying to stay on top of everything while staying positive for our clients at the same time. So right now then you're saying you just want to get these next weddings through and then worry about the vaccine passport when you have to worry about the vaccine passport. Pretty much. Um, We don't, because we don't have any indication as to who's expected to roll this out and who's expected to manage it on event days. Um, At this stage, we're just kind of, planning for what it would look like if we had to have an additional team of people to check people in, let's say. Um, but it's it's hard to say at this point because we don't have any, any indication from the government. Well, just one more thing, right, for your business to yeah. worry about these days? Exactly. Just add it on to the list. <laughs> well, you know what? Good on you for hanging in there, Jordan. I'm glad at least you've got a lot of stuff going on. So thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've seen the pictures by now. America pulling its last troops from Afghanistan, officially bringing an end to a war that lasted 20 years. Well, to talk about how those final evacuations went and what, if anything, is next, we're joined now by Global News Washington correspondent Jennifer Johnson. Good morning, Jennifer. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. What is it like now? We are actually the day after. What has the response been to the end of America's involvement in Afghanistan? Well, let's start over there. Um, Last night, as the last cargo military plane took off from Kabul airport, there were fireworks and celebratory gunfire shot into the air um, from some Afghans or also other Afghans who were celebrating in the streets, likely you know, the Taliban was orchestrating these things and Taliban soldiers immediately went onto the tarmac uh, onto at the airport and celebrated giving uh, interviews later about, you know, blasting the American government for ever getting involved in Afghanistan and saying that they have finally liberated their country. So that's what happened over in Afghanistan. Here at home, more criticism against the president for this hasty withdrawal for the deaths of 13 U.S. service members, uh, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst and Ernst and uh, Senator Marco Rubio held a town hall meeting in Iowa last night. And Marco Rubio, who ran for president previously and may run again, blasted Biden for what he said was really a political decision and not the right one for the United States and the world. So what were what were the politicians hoping would happen? Like, I know there have been cars on both sides, right, of the aisle to say, listen, we just need to extend the, the mission a little bit longer to get everybody out. I think the criticism now, you know, there was a lot of support for President Trump when he said we need to get America out of Afghanistan. I mean, basically, that the Taliban... You know, it was sort of like a fait accompli. They were going to take over eventually, and we had so few troops in Afghanistan that the mission wasn't really working anymore. So when he said it, there was some pushback, but, you know, also some support. And there was also support when Joe Biden decided that it was time for America to get out of Afghanistan. The problem was he announced it and announced all the plans August 14th, and the critics say it was just too public in terms of his announcement and the deadline of August 31st. It just basically opened the floodgates. And the criticism is that the withdrawal was too public, was too hasty, was not well-planned. There weren't enough military soldiers to contain the situation, to control the situation, to stop, you know, suicide bombers. And, you know, we know the result of that. And so the criticism isn't going to end. This is going to uh, mar Joe Biden's three-plus years left in the White House. So is that the end? Then is, is all the investigation now, Jennifer, as you point out, is all going to be in the United States talking about what went wrong? I, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see, because the Democrats control both the House and the Senate, if there will be some kind of congressional investigation. Uh, but the criticism won't end. Uh, there is also the question mark of 100-plus Americans that are still in Afghanistan and also Afghan allies who worked with the United States during the 20-year war. There are still people there. And so the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, addressed that last night, saying that we are going to try to get these people out. We still are going to try to negotiate with the Taliban to get them out but also acknowledging that the Taliban is not to be trusted and that this is not going to be easy. More to come on that. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. All right, Jimmy, thanks for having me. As we've been hearing about, another three people have been attacked by coyotes in Stanley Park in the last few days. That now brings the total to 40 in the last nine months. 
All three of these attacks did take place, though, between dusk and dawn when people have been asked to stay out of the park. But again, is that realistic to keep people even jogging off the seawall in the early morning before they go to work? Well, we've got General Manager of the Vancouver Park Board, Donnie Rosa, on the line with us now to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Simi. What is being done about this, Donnie? I feel like there's a, an increasing, growing sense of concern about this. Yeah, of course. Well, this is a very complex issue. And from the first incident, uh, BC Conservation Authority uh, has been investigating each incident. Um, as you and everybody probably knows by now, I mean, that the conservation officers are the ones who oversee the wildlife in the park. We've been uh, supporting them, um, working with the province, the Ministry of Forest, Lands and Natural Resources, to do whatever we needed to do to support the actions um, to, first of all, understand the behavior, um, and then second of all, figure out a way to change this behavior. And one of the things that's come out loud and clear is that it is the behavior of the humans that has uh, instigated this behavior from the coyotes. So that's what we're focused on as well. Right, but clearly that's not always going to be the case. You've asked people to stay out of the park, dust till dawn. People are still running. Like, can't people have a run along the seawall before they go to work in the morning safely? Yeah, I, I think right now we're asking, you know, folks to not do that along the trails. If you're going to go into one of the restaurants or attractions, you know, go there, but just avoid the trails for now as we um, continue to figure this out. Um, we are going to... Uh, sort out a solution. I know it, but, um, you know, as you know, we've removed five coyotes. We thought that would work. Um, each step is is becoming more and more, okay, we, we try one thing, and if it doesn't work, we try another thing. Um, really trying to hone in on what the trigger is. Um, right now, we're actually closing the park at 7 p.m. now. It, it was 10 p.m. earlier, and obviously it's getting dark earlier. So we're uh, we're really adding more rangers and really trying to keep folks out of the park during those hours. So how long is that going to go on for us? So then Donnie, what is the process for the next steps? Well, the province, uh, the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resources have a few options that they're considering. Um, when they uh, confirm what the plan is, we will be supporting them in that plan. So um, I think, you know, at this point, they're looking at every option. But how many more of these accidents or these attacks have to happen before we do something that we really step it up and and do something more drastic? Again, we're, like I said, we're working with them very closely. We're working with the Stanley Park Ecology Society. We're working with researchers. We don't want any more of these incidents. Um, So this is why we're taking these aggressive measures. We're trying everything we can um, to to make sure that, number one, there's folks not in there. Number two, people aren't going in and and feeding um, the animals. You know, we have uh, heard stories of people feeding raw chicken, cat food, bird feed uh, in order to bolster their social media. And then, you know, the wildlife becomes more emboldened and, and, you know, they're getting a picture and, and just put on their social media. And we're having animals now who are at risk and people who are being, you know, attacked and who are at risk because of this selfish behavior. Are we considering, Donnie, though, a a bigger cull of the coyotes? Like I said earlier, nothing's off the table. We're considering everything. Um, We're taking this very seriously. It's it's my number one priority to to sort this out and, and get the park back to being safe. Do you actually, have you seen people on social media interacting with the coyotes in that way? 
Um, well, we have some uh, stories of this. We've we've reported everything to the uh, to the province because they have the ability to ticket. Um, there's a 24-hour hotline that you can report to. Anybody can report to if they see this behavior. Um, I can give you that number if you like. It's one eight seven seven nine five two seven two seven seven. It's monitored 24/7. So we've been working, uh, like I said, with the province who have the lead on this and and. They will, they will enforce when they can. So you think that there's still too much human activity with the coyotes? There is, yeah. Um, but we also know that now the, you know, the coyotes are emboldened. There are, they are out there now. So it's, it's sadly this behavior, um, it, it's tougher to unlearn it, right? And that's why we have the researchers. That's why we have the experts in there right. to figure out ways to do that. So then given these last three attacks in just the last couple of days, Donnie, what can you say to the public about the next few days? What's going to happen? Um, I would say we're closing the park at 7, so please uh, respect that closure. Um, avoid the trails for the next little while. Like I said, if you're going to a restaurant or an attraction, please go directly there. Uh, enjoy your time and then and then leave. Don't don't go for a walk on the trail just now. All right, Donnie. Listen, thanks for that, but I'm sure we're going to be checking back in with you to see how this goes. We'll do our best. I promise you that. Well, if you could say one thing about this election campaign so far, it's that it has certainly been interesting. There is a sense, I think, that people are restless, perhaps, for a change. Different polls have come out with some fascinating results. And in the end, you know what? You just don't know what Canadians are going to do at the polls. It's what makes campaigns so important. So we've had the opportunity here on the show to talk with Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. And this morning we're joined by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Thank you very much for being here. My honour to be here. Thank you. What are you hearing from Canadians? Like, What is the most important issue to them right now? A lot of people are worried about what's going to happen in the next four years. And they're thinking, can we afford another four years of Justin Trudeau, who's let the housing crisis go out of control, who has let the super rich not pay their fair share? Or do we want to vote for new Democrats who are going to make the billionaires start paying their fair share, take on the housing crisis like we really want to actually make a difference and invest in health care and fight the climate crisis, really just put people first. And so do you think people are looking beyond the pandemic at this point, wondering what's going to happen next? Certainly. I mean, people are, we're still in the pandemic, there's no doubt, and people are really worried about it. But we're starting to start, start seeing some signs that, you know, we might be able to get past this. And so folks are starting to wonder, well, what's that going to be like? Will it be what we've seen in the past six years where the housing crisis got worse, worse over the past six years under Justin Trudeau and the climate crisis continue to get worse? Or can we turn things around and, and vote new Democrat and maybe challenge some of these issues and, and fix them? What, like when you see the polls right now and things certainly seem to be changing because all of a sudden we're seeing the conservatives in the lead in some of these polls. What does that mean for your party? Like, does, do you know who you would support? Do you have ideas about which party you would support to form government? Well, the uh, Canadians are going to choose who the prime minister is. I want to put to Canadians that you can trust me to fight for you when it comes to dealing with the housing crisis, which I know so many people are worried about. You can trust me to fight for better health care, which people in this pandemic have been thinking a lot about. And you can trust me to make sure the weight and the pressure of the recovery doesn't fall on your shoulders by either cutting the help that you need or by putting increased taxes on workers. I'm the only leader that's saying we're going to make the billionaires pay their fair share. Right. But do you have deal breakers then? I mean, if the Conservatives do have a minority, would you be willing to say I'll support you if... Again, Canadians are going to choose who the prime minister is. I'm running to become prime minister because I know I can make life better for people. 
I know I can fix the problems that I hear about every day. I hear people tell me I'm, I'm worried about having to leave my community where I grew up, where I have my friends because I can't afford to find a home that's in my budget. Renting is difficult. Buying a home is out of my imagination. That's what people tell me. And I want to fix that. And I know that people need that help and I'm going to deliver it. Okay. So lots of politicians talk about fixing housing, right? So how do we do it? What's your plan? Well, firstly, we've got to get big money out of housing. Right now, a Canadian, you know, a young person trying to buy a home is competing with people with deep pockets, the very rich, people who want to look at housing as a stock market. We want to fix that with a couple of measures, a national foreign buyer's tax. We want to tackle the capital gain so that it's not so lucrative for people to just buy homes. We also want to build more homes that are affordable, that are in people's budgets. And so we want to really invest massively in building homes. The way we used to, uh, up until the 90s, the federal government was very active in building homes that were affordable. And for the past couple of decades under liberals and conservatives, simply stopped doing that. And that's contributed to the problem. Are you talking about co-op housing? Well, a number of different things. The federal government used to be very active in investing in affordable housing, including cooperative housing, which, as you know, we haven't seen any new cooperative housing projects in a, in a long time in a, in a real significant way. We also know that not-for-profit housing is a, is a way to build homes that are within people's budgets so people can afford to rent. We also know that the we're actually in people's budgets with federal dollars to support it. All right, sorry, we just lost you there for that last part. So what, what is it that the NDP are committing here in your housing plan, which I know you were announcing this morning? Well, the, the big thing that we're, we're announcing today is a concrete way to take on housing and housing. And so uh, right now, capital gains are set up in a way that encourage people to flip their homes and uh, to, uh, to make profit off this, to use it as a stock market. So these are the really rich. These are the top 1% that are using the current capital gains tax system to make lots of money in flipping homes. We want to stop that. We want to discourage the, the super wealthy from using the housing market as a, as a stock market. And we've got a concrete way to do it. We also want to go after crime, uh, the money laundering, and the illegal activities that are also driving up the cost of housing. We've seen that here in BC, how that's directly increasing the cost of homes and driving them up in an unsustainable way. We want to tackle that as well at the federal level. All right. So we have to wait until later this morning to hear the details on that? Yeah, we're, we're going to give you all the details in uh, just a couple of minutes. We're about to pull up to our, our announcement. But, but those are some of the measures that folks can count on. Um, changing the capital gains tax system and uh, using more resources towards tackling the money laundering and illegal activities that are causing this problem. Uh, using the federal resources, which are the better equipped to deal with money laundering and uh, criminal activity because it, it flows across the country. It's not located in just one province. And so those are some of the things that people can count on us to do. Right. Do you get a sense that people's, you know, their vote is up for grabs here? That things are changing? Absolutely. People are, are right now in a new position than they were ever before. People are, are very open to this idea that why is it that a billionaire gets to make lots of money and not pay their fair share when everyday folks have to pay their fair share. So when we talk about closing the tax loopholes and enforcement to make sure wealthy corporations that make profits in Canada actually pay their fair share here, people are open to that. That's that into our healthcare, into the housing crisis, into making life better for people. I've, I've seen lots of folks who maybe in the past would be reticent are now very open and then thinking that we need to do better. We, better is possible. 
Do you think the NDP will do better in BC this time around? Well, I'm open to form government, and so I'm absolutely confident that Canadians have seen the benefit of New Democrats, how we have helped people out and our, how our plan is going to reduce costs for people, make life more affordable, and, and that's what I want to do. Do you have a plan in case you might be the linchpin about forming government? <laughs> well, as I said, Canadians will make their choice, but I'm, I'm focused on winning this election so I can make life better for people, reduce their costs, make life more affordable. I want people to know that I'm in this to win this because I want to make people's lives better. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you.